Do Christians have two natures? Find out today on Changed by Grace. Welcome to Changed by Grace. I'm Pastor Steve Herford. Believers are now alive to God. That means we are now dead to sin. And since that is the case, we must consider ourselves dead. How do we present our bodies as instruments of righteousness? Well, with your Bibles open, let's look to Romans 6. Tonight we have the privilege of looking at another passage of Scripture that we are committing to memory, and it's found in Romans chapter 6, and verses 12 and 13. But before we begin our look at that tonight, I want to have you just to take a moment and flip over to Galatians chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I want to read to you from Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way. And the perverse mouth I also hate. In Proverbs 6, verse 16, it says, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. In Galatians 5, we're told in verse 19 that the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I have told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And then one more place, Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, it tells us that in verse 24 that God gave them up to uncleanness, in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, who worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use of what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. All of those passages that I read to you tonight have a common theme. 
And that is sin. That is that which marks a person's life as they are born in Adam, where David said, In sin did my mother conceive me from the very womb. We are sinners. We take on that Adamic nature. But then when Christ comes in our life and we're justified, that is declared righteous because of the work of Christ on the cross, we are no longer to walk in this old life. In fact, the question that I would raise for you tonight as we look at Romans chapter 6 is, are you totally transformed or are you a Christian with two natures? Do you have an old nature and a new nature? Or do you have just a new nature? I want to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 6. We're looking at verses 12 and 13. But I want to read verse 11 and carry it down to verse 14, just so that we have the context of what he's saying. He says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now when we read a passage like that, it's already assumed that there has been a change take place. That there has been regeneration. There has been justification. Because to be told to not let sin reign any longer in our life tells us that we have the power over sin. Just like when you read in a passage in 1 John chapter 2, in verse 1, where John says, My little children, these things I write to you, that you sin not. But if you survey the common Christian today, or the average Christian today, and you ask them, do you still sin? The answer is, of course, yes. And the question is, why? If we now have power over sin, why do we still sin? Again, is the answer because we have a new nature and an old nature? In fact, I believe that what we're going to learn tonight as we look at this passage is something very important in showing us how to overcome the residuals of sin that is in our lives. In fact, this chapter right here is a very powerful chapter, as is the entire book of Romans. He spends in chapters 3 to 5 talking about us being declared righteous by faith. He gives us the example of Abraham. And then as he moves into chapter 6, he talks about sanctification. This whole chapter is dealing with how you are to live a holy life. I remember early on, as a new believer, wondering why some of the people that I were hanging around didn't seem to be as sensitive towards sin as I felt that I was. And I really struggled with that for a while. In fact, even after being called to the ministry, I thought that that had something to do with it. And the truth of the matter is it had nothing to do with it. I think the closer and closer that we get to Christ, the more and more sensitive that we're going to be toward our sin. The more and more that the Word of God gets in us, the more and more it's going to come out of us. Anything that we put in our life, anything that we meditate on, anything that we dwell upon, eventually will come out. That's why we have to be careful with the things that we're putting in. Just to sit around and watch TV and not guard our thoughts or to allow things to come in our minds through our ears and listen to things and again, not guard that. We're not doing what we should be doing according to this passage. Because the very things that will be used as weapons against you are your members. 
Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And I think the point that he's trying to make is that the problem that you and I deal with as Christians is sin in our members. We are no longer dead in sin. We are dead to sin. And I think that's a very important point to make as we think about how to overcome, again, the residual sin that, retain, that remains in our members. When you look at John chapter 11 and you are familiar with the story of Lazarus, and if you remember, he was dead for four days before Jesus had called him from the grave. And when he called him from the grave, he came out wrapped still head to foot in his grave clothes. And according to verse 44, Jesus had instructed those who were standing nearby to unbind him and to let him go. And that story actually serves as a vivid picture of a believer's condition at the time of his salvation. He becomes fully alive spiritually when he trusts Christ as his Savior and Lord, but he is still bound, as it were, in some of his grave clothes. And this chapter right here is going to tell you how to take off those grave clothes. Quit walking around in the past. In fact, there must be a noticeable difference in your life or salvation didn't occur. I'm not saying that there's never a struggle with sin. This whole chapter is dealing with that. Chapter 7 deals with it with even more detail. As Paul declares, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So he's identifying that struggle. The things he wants to do, he doesn't do. The things he doesn't want to do, he does. And you know, when I was thinking about that just a few moments ago and walking up here, and I was thinking, if we asked a very common question, do you sin? The answer would be yes. But would we be prepared for the second question? Why? I mean, because immediately we think that we just sin because we're sinners. And see, that particular thinking right there takes on the two-nature concept. That we still have the old man, but yet it says in six, in verse 6 that the old man was crucified with him. In Colossians 3, it talks about putting off the deeds of the old man. And I believe that putting off the deeds, and like Colossians 3.5 talks about mortifying the deeds of the body, it's dealing with those things that reside in the members. It's not, again, letting sin reign as it did before you came to Christ. Hold your place right there and go back to 1 Corinthians 6. And in that list that we read just a moment ago where he says that do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Many of us were in that list prior to Christ. If you're still in that list and that's the habit of your life, guess what? You're still lost. You're still in your sin. You're self-deceived. Because he says in verse 11, and such were, past tense, some of you. That means that you're not that anymore. You were washed, you were sanctified, which means you were set apart, and you were being justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You used to be this, he says to the Corinthians, but you're not this now. Now again, does that mean that we don't sin? If you back up in chapter 3, he tells them in verse 1, I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal. What is carnal? Fleshly. Some people teach that Christians can enter into this state called carnality and stay there for a long period of time or spend the rest of their life there. I think that's false teaching. 
Because I believe that you are either carnal or you're either spiritual or walking by the Spirit moment by moment throughout the day. That's why he says in Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit and you should not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you're not walking in the Spirit, what are you doing? You're fulfilling the lust of the flesh. You're fulfilling the desires of the flesh. And he tells them, he says, I fed you with milk and, with solid, and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able. You're still carnal. For where there is envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal, behaving like mere men? When one says, I'm of Apollos, and another says, I'm of, or, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. See, he doesn't tell them that they weren't spiritual. He says, I cannot speak to you as spiritual because of carnality. Now again, the question is raised, and it takes us back to Romans chapter 6, of this issue of putting off sin. See, when you go back to the story of Lazarus, and the difference, of course, is that all the sinful old clothes of the believer do not come off immediately as it did with Lazarus. And not only that, but believers are continually tempted to do what? To put them back on. It's that continuing battle with sin and that continuing battle with Satan that Paul recognizes here in Romans chapter 6. After he reminds his readers that they had died to sin and been raised to new life with Christ, he now turns their attention to taking off those old grave clothes, and living the new life to the fullness of Christ's righteousness and to His glory. Even in Romans 7, he uses himself as an example. And he deals more fully there with the believer's battle with sin. You and I battle with this over and over. And you even hear him saying this, verse 15 of Romans 7, For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate... That I do. In other words, the battle of sin still raged within him, even though he had died to sin, and that he did not understand why still sin raged inside of him. He even said this in verse 18, that I know that is in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, for the will to do is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I do not find. The place where sin rages is the flesh. And as such, we must constantly put it to death. Colossians 3.5 says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. It tells us that we are to kill sin in our life. And here in Romans 6.11-14, Paul actually shows us how to do that. Now look at verse 11. And he begins there with the word likewise, or you may have in your translation, even so. And that phrase right there, it has to do with the mind. Because what he is doing, he's referring back to the truths that he has just given them in the first ten verses of this chapter. The idea is simply this. He's saying, you must know and fully believe that what I have just said or else I'm about to say, or actually none of this will make any sense. He says, the truth that you are spiritually dead to sin and the reality that you are spiritually alive to Christ are not abstract concepts for your finite minds to attempt to verify. He says that they are divinely revealed foundational axioms behind Christian living, apart from which you can never... Scriptural exhortation is always built on spiritual knowledge. And so what he does here, he takes us through these first ten verses, and he goes back showing them the things that they know. 
the things that Christ did, what He did in justifying them. And then based upon that, He gives His exhortation. This is something that's very common in Scripture. God will set the standard. He'll raise the bar high. Paul uses that same approach in this passage. And he does that by focusing in here in chapter 6, and beginning at verse 11, by dealing with, first of all, what you know. He uses the word know in verse 3. He uses it again in verses 6 and 9. And he is illustrating here that his readers, that there were some things that they knew that formed the basis for this exhortation. In other words, he said, you know that you have new life in Christ. And that picks up the first five verses. Look at that. Coming off of what he says in verse 20, he says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound or increase, and where sin increased, grace increased much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, if when we said baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism. And you know, that's what's so unique now being in Christ. You and I can say no to hold our members to sin. Giving the information, setting up with giving them the standard and the knowledge, and since Christ is in you, and since you have been raised, understanding you are now to live a certain life. Say they're believers, but there's absolutely no change in their life. It's hypocrisy. It's, it's, it's a false claim. I'm sure about that if... If you have been justified, if you have been declared righteous, that there will be a progressive sanctification taking place in your life. Very clear in Scripture. Notice Paul's third use of the word no. It occurs in verse 9. This is where he now builds to his exhortation that begins in verse 11. And he says there in verse 9 that you know follows, and he says there likewise, since he died and lived. He is not a remodeled sinner, but a remade saint. He must understand that despite his present conflict with sin, he is no longer under sin's tyranny and will never be again. The true understanding of his identity about a license for sin. So notice what he says there in verse 11. Likewise, based upon all of this knowledge, based upon what you know, he tells them now to affirm and to live what you know. But to deal with sin, yes, you have to talk about it, but at the same time you have to realize you're dead to it. You have to realize now that your vocation of life is you're alive to God. You have been born again. You have been born anew. There's, there's been change. All things have become new. And so, based upon this, he says here, reckon. And that's the word also consider. It's the word legizumai. Likes it indeed to sin. Be fully convinced that you're dead. In accordance with the Word of God. You now have the ability to do what is right. Whereas before you didn't. Before you were chained to sin. Before you were slaves of sin. You know what that was like? And I remember what it was like as well as if it was yesterday. Praying many times, God, help me with this. Help me out of this. And I didn't even know who He was. I mean, don't we do that? All pagans pray. Everybody prays. I mean, that's the essential key to ecumenicalism. Let's all different. Let's pray. And it makes you want to walk around like, or fly around like a fly. It's not about what you feel, but it's the reality of what God has done in you by justifying you, by declaring you righteous. Yourselves to be alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, you must be fully convinced of this truth. 
If you're going to put to death the deeds of your body, you've got to be fully convinced that God has delivered you from sin. For alive with Christ, buried with His death and His baptism and raised to new life. And again, what is faith? What is faith? I mean, the writer of Hebrews tells us a definition for that. But I want to show you another definition that goes right along with it. It's over in Romans chapter 4. In fact, actually it's yeah Romans chapter 4. Notice what he says there. Here he's talking about Abraham. He says in verse 20 that he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. He did not waver, but was strengthened in righteousness. That's the very verse that comes from Genesis 15.6 to use of Abraham when he was taken outside and told to look at the stars of the sky. And it says it uses this as an illustration of true saving faith in James chapter 2. See, this is where sanctification and justification come together. You can't separate the two, but yet they are separate. But what you have is being declared righteous through being fully convinced, through believing in Christ, just summing that up again, and that right there producing a new nature that God gives you by which you are to live holy now. It is a total transformation. It goes on to say, in verse 23, Now it was not written for His sake alone that it was imputed to Him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in Him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. When we believe, when we are fully convinced of the promises of God that Jesus Christ died in your place, and again, the Scripture gives the whole full picture. Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you're fully convinced of who Jesus is and His work. The Bible says that God imputes to you His righteousness. Go with me to Philippians chapter 3. When Paul was talking about the very things that he counted as gain in his life, that after Christ he now counted them as loss, he tells us in verse 9 that he wanted to be found in him, not having his own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. He had now the righteousness of God. It was an addition to his life. It was a total transformation. When God saves you, it is a total transformation. It's not partial. It's not that you have now the new man who fights with the old man. Total transformation. If you have two natures, then Christ is an addition. He would be an addition to your life. He takes over the old life. Paul continues, like I said, in applying this to us by saying there in verse 24, Romans 4, that it shall be imputed to us who believe in Him whom God raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Our spiritual death to sin and resurrection into new life with Christ are the underpinning of our sanctification. We need to know and believe that we are not what we used to be. We're not the same people. We must see that we are not remodeled sinners but reborn saints as John MacArthur adequately says. We must grasp the truth that we are no longer under sin's tyranny. 
When we walk about, we know and we are acting upon what we're speaking of and we're doing that by faith. Faith is the means by which you conquer sin. Because you believe, you're fully assured of His truth. So it does matter what you believe. Not just for salvation, but for holy living. See, people sin, Christian, even Christian leaders, Christian pastors. They get involved in a pattern of sin. And they develop some type of theology that allows them to live like that. So it matters what you believe. Because what you believe will have a profound impact on how you live. If you believe that you're dead to sin, as Paul's talking about here in Romans 6, guess what? You now have that key, very important key of killing sin. You must be fully assured of this. Donald Gray Bornhouse, he says this, Holiness starts where justification finishes. And if holiness does not start, we have the right to suspect that justification has never started. Spurgeon adds to that by saying salvation would be a sadly incomplete affair if it did not deal with this part of our ruined estate. We want to be purified as well as pardoned. Justification without sanctification would not be salvation. You remember some years back when John MacArthur wrote the book, The Gospel According to Jesus. In fact, our next adult study is going to be dealing with some chapters in that book. I hope that you'll get that book and read it. But when that was going on, in fact, it hasn't stopped. It's still going on today. One of the issues in this is whether a person who gives his life to Christ yields to Christ, whether that's going to produce some holy living. Now, in no way was it ever said that those who don't believe in lordship salvation would in any way live or talk about living an unholy life. They call people to holy living. The truth of the issue is, is what you understand and what you know, you act upon. And we teach that Jesus is Lord and Jesus calls us to salvation. We surrender everything to Him. We don't take Him as addition. So, this truth he's talking about here in verse 11, it starts by reckoning or affirming this truth from the heart and then yielding your members to Christ. Notice what he says there. He says, likewise, you also reckon, consider, take into account that you've been been dead indeed to sin, that you are alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The second word that he gives is yield. And that picks up verses 12 and 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Don't let sin reign. Don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. In other words, don't continue to sin. Amen. You've been listening today to Romans chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, in a message called Let Not Sin Reign. This message is available on one full-length audio CD and is made available today by calling us at 904-651-3351. You can download today's message by visiting us online at www.changedbygrace.org. Well, I'm Pastor Steve Herford. I want to thank you for joining us today, and I hope that you'll join us again next time as we study God's Word. Do you struggle to memorize Scripture? Have you ever considered singing it? Hi, I'm Pastor Steve Herford, and I'd like to help. 
visit my website at steveherford.com. There you will find over 40 scripture memory songs like the one playing now. Again, visit us at steveherford.com to learn more.